Well, welcome. Glad you're tuning in with us. My name is Ethan, one of the pastors here on staff. Uh, if you're watching, and we'd love to hear from you, just kind of know who's watching this. And so feel free to email us sometime throughout the week. We have uh, lots of things uh, happening this weekend. We'd love to see you on a Sunday if you ever get the chance to come our way because we have baptisms we're celebrating this weekend. We have a team that's going uh, to Mexico uh, to do some uh, partner with our missions organization down there, shoulder to shoulder, working with a local church down there. Uh, they leave Saturday, and so they're going to be uh, traveling all day Saturday and will arrive and be there for Sunday. So love to get to know you, love to get to meet you that way. If you got a Bible, get it open to Luke 18. Luke chapter 18, that's where we're going to be because we have been going through this series on prayer together. And as we've been going through this series on prayer together, we've said this, that it's not about praying more. It's not about praying better or even just praying different. It's about praying dangerously. What would it look like if we prayed dangerously? And my hope is this, that as we've been going through this series the past three weeks, if you've been traveling with us, that you have had moments in the quietness of the mornings and the stillnesses of your evenings to test pilot some of these prayers out for yourself. Because the beauty of this series is not going to be the diligent notes that you take, which is great and fine, but the beauty of this series, the beauty of this conversation as a whole is not so much the preaching as much as it is to be prayed It's to be prayed, it's to be experienced, it's to be jumping into. It's getting off the carousel and onto the Millennium Force adventure. It's getting and jumping out of the plane, hopping out of the plane into this adventure of dangerous prayers. And just a a forewarning, today's prayer is no exception. This is a dangerous prayer. In fact, I would say it's an even deadly prayer. It's a prayer that my guess would be this. It's why some of you absolutely love Jesus. And it's why some of you, maybe you're watching, and this is the one you struggle with about Jesus. Or maybe for you, it's a mixture of both. It's a mixture of both because this prayer, you've probably heard it before. It's the Lord's Prayer. And he says this, This then is how you should pray, Jesus, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's what we looked at uh, a few weeks ago. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Uh, as, as we look at this prayer, forgive us as we forgive others. I was thinking of uh, spite houses. Have you heard of spite houses before? Spite houses are houses that are completely constructed and built purely on the basis of spite. And so uh, one spite house that was in 1925, the story goes like this, that the there was a divorce settlement. And the divorce settlement, the the husband got the house and the wife in this settlement got the front yard. And so purely out of spite, she constructed this very uh, unique house in Seattle right in the front yard so she could, for the rest of her days, live right in the front yard of her husband so he could not get the front yard, right? You're like, man, that is absolutely absurd. Here's another one for you. This gentleman right here in 1803, uh, or 1830, I believe it was, 
uh, he was tired of people using this alleyway in uh, right beside his house. And so people were taking their wagons and different things like that through there and scratching up the side of his house. And so instead of building a fence like a normal person might do, he decided what he would do is out of spite, he built a seven foot wide house which is constructed right to beside his house so that no one would be able to use the alley. Last one, this one's uh, quite honestly crazy to me because this person, uh, another divorce settlement in 1925, similar situation, the husband uh, was required by the court of law to build a house, an exact replica of their house for his wife. And so he agreed to those terms, and what he decided to do was he built her an exact replica of their house, but built it on a salt marsh where she could not have access even to uh, fresh running water, right? It was a house purely built out of spite. And when you look at these, they're absolutely hilarious to me to watch just the absurdity of people who build and construct buildings out of spite. And it can be funny to see how far people will go. But what's not very funny is this, when you and I have the same ability to construct a spite house in our soul, that you and I will construct spite houses in our souls. Did you catch what the Lord's Prayer said? What Jesus said, he said, forgive us our debts as we also forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. I wonder this, that if forgiveness, the greatest temptation that the evil one will lead you and I into is the temptation of unforgiveness. And what he will do is he will hold us hostage in an unforgiven state because Satan throughout all of scripture was this enraged, embittered towards God. And since the beginning, he's invited people to join him in his fury and alienation. And when you're invited in and you drink the devil's cocktail of rage and resentment, all of a sudden he has a hold on you. A whole, and he holds you hostage. It's like building a building of bitterness in your heart towards your friends, neighbors, spouse, coworkers, God maybe, or even the relationships that we have around here. Jesus is so concerned about forgiveness. In fact, at the end of the Lord's Prayer, he adds a little postscript. He adds a, a postscript and he says this, for if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. That Jesus, within six times, within these six verses, forgiveness is mentioned. There is so much that's connected to forgiveness. Your forgiveness from God, your forgiveness vertically, is directly connected to your forgiveness horizontally. And vice versa is true. And so they come from the same door. You can't draw, you can't pick and choose which one you want. Like, I want forgiveness from God, but I don't want to have to do it with others. It's a catch-22. Forgiveness is at the very heart of the gospel. It's what makes it good news. It's central to how we grow in love for Jesus and others. More and more, it's absolutely a fundamental mark for somebody who is in Christ. So what does it look like to pray this dangerous and deadly prayer? It looks like three things. A deeper brokenness, a perpetual desperation, and a costly decision. 
Would you pray with me for a moment? Father, I know this, we are about to enter onto hard ground. But Lord, I pray as we enter on this hard ground together, I pray, God, you would somehow make it holy ground. Father, forgive us. Meet us in our stories. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus tells this parable in Luke 18. Hopefully you're turned there. Luke 18, it says this. To some who are confident of their own righteousness, they look down on everyone else. Jesus told this parable. He told a story. He says, two men went up to the temple to pray. They went to church. They're, they're praying. One, of, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Now, at this point in the story, they would have already, the, the crowd that would have been listening to Jesus tell the story would have been shocked. It would have been jarring and alarming to see the contrast between these two characters, a Pharisee for one and a tax collector for another. A Pharisee, let's give a note on Pharisees. Pharisees were the most highly esteemed, most respectable people in Jewish society. They would have loved the law. And Pharisees would have uh, done everything in their power to uphold the law as best they could, right? And so Pharisees, they, they wouldn't uh, roll stop signs, right? They, they would come to a complete stop every single time. They were upstanding citizens. In fact, you wanted them in your church because Pharisees got things done in church. They made things happen. Pharisees were great. They felt really, really comfortable in church. Tax collectors couple observations about tax collectors. They would have been religiously and politically and socially described as monsters. Religiously, they would have betrayed their God to do what they were doing in their profession. They would have betrayed their social circles to do what they were doing. They sold their soul to the enemy, to the Roman Empire, to somehow make a buck for themselves. They made money off other people's bodies and stealing from other people's livings. A, a parallel today would be a high-class lawyer of some kind in our community that would be well-known and well-respected and well-loved and, and cared for his family next to a drug pusher who takes advantage of our community, who takes advantage of other people's addictions to somehow make money for himself. This would have been alarming. This would have been unheard of. And those listening, even at this moment when Jesus starts the story, they would have leaned in. Their eyes would have locked on him. Their ears would have dialed up a few notches. And suspicion would have started flooding their mind and just a burning would have been happening already in their hearts. We got to see and kind of contrast these two characters for a moment because Jesus goes on and he says this, the Pharisee stood by himself and he prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector over here. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. The Pharisee, you could just see the spite in him, right? He, he's constructed a building of bitterness. He's confident about himself. He's talking about himself. He looks down on other people. Some theologians speculate this, that when it says stood by himself and prayed, it would have been better translated to say this, that he prayed to himself, he, he gives a nod to God right off the bat. Like he knows, he's, he's real churched. He's been in it. 
He knows what to say, but he gives a nod to God. But the best that this is, this is not a prayer. The the best case scenario is this is therapeutic self-talk at best. This is not him praying. And, And maybe just a moment, I might say this, that maybe for you, prayer seems very difficult. And maybe the reason prayer is so difficult is not because you're actually praying, but you're giving God the nod to then go on talking about what it is that you want to talk about. You give God a nod and you say, dear Lord, and you end it in Jesus' name, but actually you're not praying. You're just giving a list of your accomplishments, maybe giving yourself some daily affirmations or trying to talk yourself through a struggle or situation, but you're not actually praying. I think that some of us, some of my best moments of prayer have been less of me talking and more of me sitting, sitting often in silence before God, just trying to draw him to my mind. And I often find my brain wanders and it roams, and I've just tried to go, God, maybe in my wandering thoughts is exactly where you want to be working in. That that I don't always have to come to God and, and just start talking right away. But I can come and just sit in his presence and be with Jesus. We got to look at the other character in the story. His prayer goes a little different. The tax collector. Well, he stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast saying, God, have mercy on me a sinner. The tax collector knows something about himself. He knows he's not supposed to, he doesn't belong here. He doesn't belong in the temple. He doesn't belong in this church, right? In this Jewish society, what they would have thought of as a church. He doesn't belong. He stands at a distance. He doesn't even look up to heaven because he knows he doesn't belong in the presence of God. He knows he doesn't go waltzing in there like God and him are on good terms and we're doing okay and I'm sure God understands. The tax collector stands at a distance because he's afraid of coming in this space. God might strike him with lightning from heaven, which he's never seen happen and we've never seen happen. But he also knows something else. He's so fearful to step in, but it is the only thing that he has any kind of hope in. And so it's his last chance. It's his last effort to go into this space. He realizes the depths of his brokenness. We'll say it this way. I think that we need a deeper brokenness. As we pray, we pray a deeper brokenness that recognizes the gravity of my wrongs. Can I ask you a question? Have you ever done something stupid before? When I, when I first moved up this way, uh, about a week into me being here, not my very first week being here. Uh, this was years ago. I was much younger, uh, or maybe not as much younger as I'd like to think. But uh, when I moved up this way, I realized I had a meeting, my first meeting I had to be at, and I wanted to make sure I was there on time, wanted to try and be early. And my alarm, I woke up late, and so I'm frustrated already, getting everything uh, organized, getting set get off in my car and take off driving. Now, I grew up in in a place where I might have driven like seven or eight roads, and I just drove those roads every day. Like, I didn't go exploring all that much. Uh, we I grew up in a small town, and so it was kind of the same path every single day. And I was taught a few things about driving. 
The first thing I was taught about driving is this. If there's sidewalks, you know you're in city limits. If there's not, your safe bet is to guess you're in, uh, you're taking country roads or you're taking back roads, right? And so uh, I was told that back roads, country roads, if you don't see a speed limit sign, you can assume that it's 55 miles per hour. That's a safe assumption. And if you don't see a speed limit sign in city limits, you can assume that it's 25. And that's a safe assumption as well. So back to where I'm at. I'm driving, I'm late, I'm already frustrated, I wanna make a good impression, I'm nervous about that, and so what I do is I'm driving in uh, down Norton, and I'm driving on Greenwich Road right there. And this was before they had a whole uh, allotment that they built back there, and they had cornfields out there, they have uh, open road, there's definitely not sidewalks in that area, and so I'm driving down, and I'm, I didn't see a speed limit sign, and so I assume it's 55, but I'm late, right? And so as I'm late, I'm like, I got to get there. And so I crank up the gas, pedal to the metal a little bit, and uh, as I'm moving along Greenwich Road, I see a cop car coming down the hill on the other side of the road. And I mean, as soon as I thought to myself, how fast am I going? That car, that cop car flipped back around to come find me. It's like nine o'clock in the morning. And the, the cop, they pull me over. They come to my window. They knock on the window. They're like, do you know why I pulled you over? I'm like, I'm pretty sure I was maybe going a little too fast. I'm sorry about that. And uh, they, they said, yeah, uh, do you want to know what I clocked you going? I said, sure. Uh, they said, it's 35 here, and you were going 70, 70 uh, miles per hour in a 35. I said, oh boy. <laughs> and I said, I'm new here. I thought this was a country road. I grew up, there's no sidewalks here, right? And, and I'm like nervous, sweating. I'm trying to explain, like I'm, this is my first week up in this area. I'm not really familiar with what's going on. I'm sorry. They're like, yeah. But it, it was, I was going fast enough at nine o'clock in the morning. The, the cop did exactly what they were supposed to do. They gave me a ticket and uh, I had to go to court. And so I was already nervous. In case you're wondering, I did make the meeting on time, actually early. I got pulled over somehow and I made the meeting early. I, it was so frustrating. But I, uh, a couple weeks later, I had to go to court, traffic court. And, and uh, there were people that were coming in already and they, they were ahead of me. And so the judge was reading off their charges. And I'll never forget, I was sitting on a wooden bench getting wait, waiting to be tried in, in this courtroom. And uh, I had called my dad uh, after the ticket had happened. And I said, Dad, I'm sorry. I got a ticket and I got to go to court for this. And my dad just said, hey, you know what? I'm going to be there. I'm, I'm, I'm going to be there. It's going to be okay. It's like, okay, great. And so I'm sitting in this courtroom with my dad, which I imagine I'm like, I wonder what was going through my dad's brain then. Just sitting right there next to me in this courthouse, waiting for his son to be tried. And I was towards the end, so I saw quite a few people because my last name uh, made me towards the end of the line. And the judge calls my name, and I come up to the podium. And the judge, I'm looking up at the judge, and the judge is looking down on me. And they read off my charges. And as they read my charges, I can feel just the clamminess in my hands, the sweat on my brow, the turning of knots in my stomach as I'm just hearing. And for half a moment, I'm thinking, maybe I can figure out a way to plead innocent. Maybe I can figure out a way to state my case and they'd understand. And 
all these thoughts are flooding through my mind to just get out of whatever is coming. I'm like, I'm going to go to prison for the rest of my life. I'm going to lose my license or something. I'm like, my dad is probably so disappointed in me. And the judge asks me the question, how do you plead? I look up for a moment and I look down and I said, I plead guilty. Guilty. I knew I, I was guilty as charged. There's no getting out of it. The judge uh, must have been in a great mood that day. They, they pardoned me and I just ended up paying some court fees. I remember walking out of the room and I was walking out with my dad and I, I'm like breathing again, finally. Like, yeah, I'm like, oh my goodness, I can't believe that I didn't lose my license. I can't believe they didn't sentence me to prison for, for life or something. And uh, I was so thrilled. And I remember just looking at the same time I was thrilled. I just looked at my dad and I'm like, oh man, like I, I really felt like I let my dad down in some ways. And I felt like I was super frustrated at myself. And my the car was in my dad's name, the insurance and, and things. And so I just, I looked at my dad and I just said, dad, I'm sorry. I'm sorry this happened. I, I made you have to leave work today to come and sit right next to me at a courthouse. And my dad said, my dad said, it's okay. What's done is done, right? And I remember what, what marked me was the mercy of my dad in that moment. Not the punishment of the law, but the mercy of my father is what marked me more that day than anything else. Romans 3 says this, that now we know whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God who is the judge. And therefore no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious. We become aware that there's a relationship happening there with our sin and with our God. You and I one day will stand before God the judge. And the beauty of the gospel is this, that the judge came off the podium and took the verdict for me, guilty. On the cross, Jesus, God in the flesh, came down. And what that tells us is this, that the judge, you have the, you have the uh, ability to be pardoned today by the judge of the universe because of what Jesus has done on the work of the cross. But you also have a God who is a father who forgives you who shows you mercy. It's a deeper brokenness that repents in light of God's mercy. This seven-word prayer is beautiful that this tax collector gives. It's sincere. He realizes the reverence of God, who is the judge and his father, and in the middle of his sinfulness, in the middle of his wrongs, he recognizes, but he says this beautiful prayer, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. He's pleading. He's begging. He is praying. And 1 John 1, 9 says, if, if we confess our sins, if we repent of our sins, we call it what God calls it. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Did you see what the tax collector does? He beats his chest. That word in the Greek is, is tepto, tepto, which sounds like tiptoe, which is kind of funny, so you can remember it that way. Tepto. 
to beat, to strike blows, sharp blows against your body repeatedly, beating your body, your chest. It's, it's what they would have used for weapons, weapons to wound someone. They would have used this word beat. It's like a piercing kind of beating of the chest. I have no modern day equivalent for this kind of desperation where he's saying, God have mercy on me, a sinner. And he's repeatedly doing this. It's not just a deeper brokenness, but it's this perpetual desperation that reflects on my heart with the spirit of God. Romans 8 says this, that in the same way, the spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit. As I invite the Spirit of God to come in and search my heart again and again and again and over and over and over and over, sometimes all I have is wordlessness or a groan. And if all you have is a groan, that is all he needs to work with. So if I bring God a groan of God, why? Help. Forgive me. God. If all I have is a groan, he can work with that. But if I don't bring the groan, if I don't bring what I have, he can't do what he can do. So even in my groanings, I bring them to God. Even if I'm not sure how to word it, how to say it, I bring it to God. Why? Because if I don't, Ephesians says this, do not grieve. You're grieving the Holy Spirit with whom you were sealed in the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, slandering, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Do you know what will block up your prayer life? Do you know what will clog it up is a bitterness. You can say maybe all the words you want, but if you don't bring your groan, if you don't bring the wordlessness, if you don't bring what's actually going on, what God is trying to search and bring out of you, if you don't bring that, it will block up your prayer life because resentment will sit in the room of your heart and it will reside there and the spirit has no room to get in. It's what we say, it's grieving the spirit of God. It's grieving his spirit. So the question is this, that if, if there's a lack of intimacy with God, if there's a lack of God's presence in my life right now, if I feel like the fire for God that I once had going is starting to go out, so to speak, then maybe, just maybe the question I should be asking is, am I grieving the Holy Spirit in my life because of a building of bitterness that's grown in my heart? Is resentment residing in my heart because the tax collector and the Pharisee, they show up to the same space. They both show up to the temple, but they're in two totally different places with God. And what's interesting is the Pharisee returns to what he knows, his accomplishments, his morality, his goodness, his fasting and his tithing. But the tax collector, I think, goes to what he needs. He goes to what he needs. He's forever marked by God's accomplishment for him. Nothing of what he's done. He's forever marked. He, he, in desperation, 
God have mercy. I think he keeps going back to this desperate need for God. And Luke 18 says this, Jesus ends it and he says, I tell you that this man, the tax collector, rather than the other Pharisee, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. A perpetual desperation prayer looks like this. It returns to the freedom that's found in forgiveness. There was a complicated psychology study of revenge where a group of Swiss researchers scanned the brains of people who had been wronged during a board game. Uh, the researchers then gave the people a chance to punish their, their opponent, and it, for a full minute, the victims contemplated whether or not to take revenge in this moment. And the activity in their brains was recorded during that, moment, that minute. Revenge gave them a feeling of reward. And behavioral scientists have observed that instead of quenching hostility, revenge can prolong the unpleasantness of the original offense. And that merely bringing harm upon an offender is not enough to satisfy a person's vengeful spirit. Instead, a delivering justice, revenge, instead of delivering justice, revenge often creates only a cycle of retaliation. That's what they called it. See, the seeds of bitterness can grow something very ugly in us. That the bitterness and the ugliness that was done to me, all of a sudden, if I let that grow, it becomes this thing that grows inside of me. And I embody the very thing I despise, the very thing that I hate, because bitterness, it repeats the offense in my mind. It repeats the story over and over and over again in my mind and in my heart. And all of a sudden, that story that's repeated is a story that begins to be lived out of me. That this bitterness that I carry, uh, I have a, a friend of mine who says it this way, that bitterness is a poison. It's a poisonous pill that you swallow hoping the other person dies. It's a cycle of retaliation that you're caught in going over and over, reminding yourself again and again, and you're stuck in this spite house of bitterness. And the only key out is forgiveness. The only key out of the cycle of retaliation, the spite house of bitterness in our soul, is through the key of forgiveness that's found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. In this it's not going to feel um, natural. <laughs> Forgiveness is not so much a reaction. You're not going to just react to somebody who's uh, retaliating against you, who's, who's done you wrong. You're not just going to react and go, you know what, it's fine. Forgiveness is not a reaction, but it's a new action. It breaks the cycle of retaliation, gets out of there and takes a different road. It comes back to the mercy of God each and every morning, returning there to get its cues, returning there to be a compass that points north. Lamentations 3 says this, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Are you coming to God's mercy every morning? Because His mercy found in the gospel will be like a compass when people wrong you, that will help you navigate the wrong. 
navigate the hurt, navigate the pain. And that compass will point you to a true north that you continue to return back to is the freedom that's found in God's forgiveness. Jesus, what his goal is, is to invite tax collectors and to invite Pharisees to come to the same table of God's forgiveness. He invites Matthew, the tax collector. He invites Nicodemus, the Pharisee, to come together and eat. He invites Mary Magdalene and prostitutes and Saul, the Pharisee, the Pharisee of Pharisees, under the same radical forgiveness of Jesus, to experience Jesus. So what does this mean? This means that forgiveness is not just prayed for a deeper brokenness, a perpetual desperation, but we pray to make a costly decision that chooses to release what those have wronged me. It chooses to release those who have wronged me. Forgiveness is never free. It always, it always costs the one who absorbs the blow, who absorbs the debt. If I let you drive my car and you go and total my car today and I forgive you, I still bite the bullet. <laughs> I'm without a car. Or if I have to go and buy another one, I'm the one who eats the debt. I'm the one who absorbs the blow. It's, it's like the Pharisee in this parable would have been hearing this. The Pharisees that would have been hearing this story being told in front of them, they would have connected real names to the tax collector. They would have attached real names to tax collectors who would have stolen from them, who would have cheated them, who would have been despicable in Jewish society. And the Pharisees, as they're listening to this story, they would have been putting dots together in their mind and they would have been like, Jesus, what are you saying? You want me to do what? Forgive? That you forgive this man and you want me to be okay with that? Am I okay with a God who forgives my enemies? Hebrews 4 says this. Make every effort to live in peace. Forgiveness is not a feeling, just so you know. It's, it's actually more of an effort. It's not natural. It's not easy. It's going to be an effort. It's going to be hard. And you make every effort to live at peace with everyone and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. You're probably sitting there asking yourself the question, Ethan, I can't, why? Well, I, I can't forgive. Why would I forgive them? You have no idea what they've done to me. You have no idea the hurt, the pain that they've caused me. And you're right, I have no idea. The only thing I know is the cross of Jesus, and Jesus never asks us to do something he hasn't done himself. And Jesus, who was on the cross, prayed this very prayer after an unjust and illegal trial, after being beaten, mocked, and spat on, after being strapped across to his back and carrying it to his demise, after being humiliated in front of crowds, hung beside two criminals as a criminal himself. 
This had gone way too far, and the Son of God was about to be murdered. And with tears in his eyes, as he looked out and he saw the crowds who humiliated him and who thought he was so entertaining, and he saw the soldiers who were mocking him and choosing to put him up on this cross as sport, he saw his friends who had abandoned him in fear of even being connected with him. And he saw the Pharisees who were standing in their victory as they looked at Jesus hanging there on the cross. And he saw two criminals who were hanging beside him, guilty. And he looked out on them. And with his last breath and some of his last words, as blood is leaving his body, the pain is intensifying and increasing and sin is having its full effect and weight. Jesus looks out and he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They don't know what they're doing, God. But do you see who else is standing out there? Do you see who else is by the Pharisees and by the soldiers and close to the two thieves on the cross? Do you see who else is there? It's you and it's me. It's me that Jesus is hanging on the cross for as he's getting ready for his final breath. And he says, God forgive Ethan. He doesn't know what he's doing. And the beauty of the gospel is Jesus didn't just take a nail for me. He didn't just bleed a few drops for me. He died for me. And John Stout, a theologian, he says this. He says, before we can begin to see the cross as something done for us, we must see it as something done by us. I bet you're right, they don't deserve to be forgiven. But the ground is level at the foot of the cross. The only way I can extend forgiveness is if I've experienced it. And forgiveness is not dismissing the wrong, it's not diluting the pain, it's not disregarding the injustice that has been done. And I know that those of you who are watching, you've experienced things like that. You've had that. And what it feels like is I'm asking you to just forget it, dismiss it, don't worry about it. But you're like, I can't. I've been used. I've been abused. I've been hurt. I've been wronged. There's been injustice done. And I'm not asking you to just dismiss it. I'm not even asking you to run back into it. That's reconciliation. That's another sermon for another day. But what Jesus is so concerned for you about is forgiveness. And forgiveness is not a feeling. Forgiveness is not the same thing as trust. And I know that some of you have been deeply wounded and deeply hurt. And if we can be helpful as a pastoral team, please reach out to us. We want to be. But Jesus is saying this. It's a costly decision. And it's a costly decision that resolves to maintain that very forgiveness that was given. Jesus, in Luke 17, he says, If your brother sins against you, rebuke them. 
and if they repent, forgive them. Forgiveness is not brushing something under the rug. It's, it's addressing what needs to be addressed. It's to go to them sooner than later. If they repent, praise God, forgive them, and move on. Don't hold it over their heads. Don't bring it back up every time you see them. Don't try and figure out subtle ways of making uh, them pay you back. Don't give them the silent treatment, or don't give them, don't get sucked into an imagination of annihilation where I just dream for a moment of different ways that I can destroy them or ways that they're being destroyed or things that they deserve that are happening to them that are wronged in this life. If they repent, come, praise God for that. What happens if they don't repent? Mark says this, Jesus, the words of Jesus, when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them so that your Father in heaven may forgive you of your sins. If they don't repent, we still forgive. Because it's a costly decision that rejoices in the reservoir of God's love for us. At the cross of Jesus, the person who is full of grace and truth is where mercy and judgment meet. It's where mercy and judgment collide and the debt has been paid. Love has been shown. And we, you and I, we don't get a bucket of willpower and just try and muster this up on our own accord to somehow forgive somebody. But we go back, we pull back from a deeper power. It can't be willpower. It's got to be from a reservoir of God's redeeming power. The cross gives us the power where mercy ultimately triumphed over judgment. And Tim Keller writes this. He says this. He says, on the cross, God forgiving us. That was only possible if he suffered. On the cross, God's love satisfied his own justice by suffering, bearing the penalty for sin. There is never forgiveness without suffering. Nails, thorns, sweat, blood, never. Scars happen. Wounds happen. Nails happen. Sweat happens. But our scars can become stories that point to our Savior. Our thorns can become tales that tell of the glories of God's love for humanity. And the nails that we take become narratives that show to the king who hung on a cross for me. Paul says this in one of his letters in Philippians. He says, in this way we participate. I want to participate in the sufferings of Christ. As we forgive When people have wronged us, we are closer to Jesus than we've ever known or realized. Can I just be honest with you for a second? I know that this is real and this is hard and it lands on ears that honestly, maybe you don't want to hear and I'm with you. This is so hard for me. Jesus says, forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors. Father, forgive us as we forgive. Can I ask you, are you living in a spite house today? Here's what I know about spite houses. They're they're small. (laughs) There's not a whole lot of room in them. They're tight living quarters. And the person who built the spite house never enjoys living in it. Even if it wrongs somebody else, even if it 
hurts somebody else, they never enjoy living in it. If you're in a spite house, if you've built a building of bitterness in your heart, can, can we be honest this morning, today? You're not free. I'm not free. It's bitterness. It's playing the tape over and over and over in my head. And I totally understand that forgiveness is so much more complex, it's painful, it's nuanced than any sermon can somehow describe. It's an everyday decision to wake up and go, I'm going to forgive them for the terrible injustice that they caused me. But if you don't, (laughs) Jesus had to suffer and die an excruciating death on a cross to forgive you. So why do you think that forgiveness would be any different for you? In fact, I think we resonate more with Jesus when we suffer to forgive somebody of the wrong. We become closer to Jesus in that moment. And there's something that might be living in me right now that needs to die in order so that I can know new life. Maybe there's a bitterness that's living in you that needs to die. It's a deadly prayer. And it's not based on willpower. It's based on the resurrection power of Jesus. And it's the only thing that I know that has enough hope and enough power for you to be freed from your bitterness, for you to be freed from your resentment, and to know the forgiveness of God and to be able to extend that to others. So, Father, I pray. I pray this just in this moment. God, I know there's some of us that are watching who have never experienced and known that they could be forgiven by God the Judge, God the Father, that they could even call you Father. So, Lord, my prayer is this right now in this moment that there might be some that are watching that would echo the prayer of the tax collector. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Have mercy, God. And we know that if we confess it, you see it, and you are gracious, gracious and just to forgive us of our sin. And Father, I know there's some of us that are listening and and as soon as we brought this up, God, there's somebody that came to our mind, a person who wronged us. That person has a name. They're attached to a story. They're another human soul, and we've been holding rage and bitterness towards them, and we don't feel like we could ever forgive them. God, I pray this. I pray this, that we would be willing to pray the dangerous prayer. I pray, God, we'd be willing to pray the deadly prayer for that person because you prayed it for us. I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.